The Start On Demand. On demand. Hey, on this edition, we're going to talk about the holidays. It's a difficult time for some folks. We'll give you some strategies on how to ease the stress for yourself and also how to be there for somebody else. Drew Walatarski, member of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, joined us for breakfast with the Bombers. We'll share that with you. Marion Willis from St. Boniface Street Links. She was our first guest talking about the meth crisis in our city. The provincial government announced that in conjunction with the federal government and City of Winnipeg, a task force. We'll start with this. Let's get it underway. Mackling, McNabb, Moore, Braun, Forche with you. Brett McGarry on holidays this week. Thanks for spending some time with us, starting your day with us at 680CJOB. That might be the end of your day, so if you're working overnights, thanks for spending some time with us as well as you make your way home. Hopefully you have a good sleep in the middle of the day. I, I, I had a nap yesterday in the parking lot at the kids' school. I thought about <laughs> bringing a pillow in my car for that exact reason. I think you should do it. Yeah. A uh, blanket would have been just perfect. Just nice super rough. Blanket. Who's that creepy lady in the car up there with, like, the old blanket? <laughs> okay, never mind. Oh. No blanket, no <laughs> pillow. <laughs> It looks weird. Yeah. Speaking of creepy, an unusual sentence has been handed down to a man convicted of poaching in Missouri. And I'm not talking about poaching eggs. Here's ABC's Alex Stone. David Barry Jr.'s sentence for illegally taking wildlife in one of the biggest deer poaching cases in Missouri history. While he's in jail for a year, at least once a month, he has to watch the Disney classic Bambi. Including the scene where a hunter shoots Bambi's mother. Disney is a parent company of ABC News, a judge ordering the first viewing of Bambi on or before December 23rd. Alex Stone, ABC News. Eh, Cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, Maybe more the cruel part is what this bozo and his cohorts were doing. Right, they were just killing, they were poaching the deer, cutting their heads, like, for the trophy, and then leaving all that meat. Bambi's a good movie, though. They should make him watch a bad movie. That's the punishment. (laughs) (laughs) Like, is the, the, obviously the theory is that he's going to watch it enough and, yeah. have remorse for taking the deer's life. I, I think if you're already at the stage this person's at, I don't really know what Bambi's going to do to change your mind. Kelly, yeah. what do you think? I don't think Bambi's much of a trophy, so I think he'll probably uh, wind up uh, going back to the the evil of his ways oh later. Oh, my goodness. I, don't, I, don't, I, I agree with Lorena. I just don't see someone like that showing the necessary amount of remorse. Well, it got me thinking about the unique punishments that I've handed out as a parent and certainly received as a kid. Jeff Forche, do you get some pretty unique punishments along the way? No, I just got the wooden spoon. The wooden <laughs> spoon? <laughs> you get, straight get cha- to the wooden spoon? Yeah, get chased the wooden spoon, you know. that's uh, <laughs> That'll set you straight. Did it set you straight? <laughs> Come on. No, it didn't. Come on, look at him. Look at me. It did. No, look at me. I mean, it was just last week that happened. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How about you, Bron? How, uh, the, uh, I've, it wasn't unusual except for the extent of it and... Let's say in like 1987, how much would like a, a bucket of brown paint cost? Oh. Five bucks Ballpark. or something. Yeah. yeah. 
My dad took away my – I spilt one in the garage. He took away my allowance for a year. <laughs> $3 a week for a year, which is like $150. Maybe it was semi-gloss. <laughs> I don't care. What is high-end bronze paint? What's going on? Is it I don't know. gold, it was, flat? Well, no, it's, it's it was, the mess he it made. It. But the mess he made, you made on the driveway. Oh, yeah. On the garage floor. Yeah. It was just see, a big brown splotch for the rest. Go. It's probably still there. There you uh, go. That's what they're Well, he never cleaned it up, so it didn't cost him anything. Yeah, but he had to look yeah, at it. Yeah, he had to so look at so, it and uh, hate it, you every time yeah, he looked oh, at it. Oh, that's the most angry I've seen him. Wow, you were very bad as a kid. No. My dad, when we were in high school, twice took away the TV. He felt we watched TV too much. Like literally took it out of the house? Physically removed it from the house. <laughs> Both times were for six months. So there was no TV for six months. The first time, he actually kept it in the house, but in the basement, like behind the stairs. And we figured out a way to MacGyver like a long electrical cord just so we could get the hockey games. And we, someone's job was to be on watch and the other person would sit on the stairs. And then the second time, he caught onto that and the TV was just right, right out, out of, of the there. house. Yeah. yeah. More, I could see you being very creative with the punishments. Well, I have one from when I was a kid and one from when I was a parent, and both would probably not sit well under the flag of child and family services, but I'll share the story anyway. <laughs> but here we go. Yeah, there were uh, four, uh, four brothers. I was the youngest of that bunch. I was the middle of the family, but uh, I had three older brothers. We fought all the time. My dad finally reached his breaking point. So he brought us out to the front of the house, gave us two bas- uh, baseball bats, and said, have at her the oh, right boy. way. Like all four of you? Gave us two baseball bats. For and then four the la- boys? The, yeah, the last two standing got to come in for dinner. So, of course, <laughs> we sat there with these bats and thought, okay, how are we going to do this? Anyway, the Cole's Notes version of that. Dad sent his message, and, and message was received. Uh, there was one... Hot summer day, I wanted to paint my fence in Kamloops. I think uh, our daughters were about eight and five, maybe seven and four about that time. So I said, you know, just play. Have fun and play while Dad's staying in the fence. Well, that lasted for five minutes. Lindsay's stuck a fork down my throat. So they're fighting with each other. So I got their little white table, their two little white chairs, lathered them up with sunscreen, made sure they were fully hydrated, and made them sit out there and stare at each other while I stay in the fence. And that was like four hours. And they never fought again. Oh, they did fight again. <laughs> of course they did. Not... But 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 that probably bought me about I don't know two or three days of no fighting. Yeah. Oh, you put <laughs> on the sunscreen too. I feel like that oh. was very good parenting. Oh, if my wife had come home and their shoulders had been sunburned, I, 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 I would have. Oh, no, no, no. I made sure they were well looked after, but I wanted them to just sit there and stare at each other. And don't say a word. Why are you looking at me? I just figured you must have done something. Oh, I've done lots of stuff, but uh, my my parents were pretty good. My parents were pretty cool. I didn't have too much cruel and and unusual punishment. The most unusual punishment I received was in grade seven from Mr. Avon at River Heights School in Brandon. I forgot to bring a pen to class. And so he sent me to the library to do lines. Mm-hmm. And he caught me going to my locker and he goes, he was British and I can't do a British accent, but he says, Mackling. What are you doing? I said, I'm getting a pen. He says, you don't bring a pen to class. You don't get a pen to do your lines. <laughs> so I had to do 150 lines with my fingernail. I will bring a pen to class. Wow. And? 
I never forgot to bring a pen. Do you see my desk? Do you know how many pen you know how many I know, pens that's where I, I have? I get all my pens from. I always have a box of pens. So <laughs> I did learn a lesson from Mr. Avon once upon a time. Hey, so who knows? George, Maybe this listening. dear dear guy will learn a lesson too. Well, one of our listeners says they should make him watch Frozen in a room <laughs> yeah. full of four year olds twice a month for a year. That'll fix yeah, some- do it. <laughs> that's how I felt about cars after a few years with the kids. It was every uh, Friday. Oh my gosh, so much movie. car. Send, it is a good movie, but not 200 times. Oh, come on. Send us uh, your cruel and unusual punishment, 204-780-6868 via the text, or shoot us an email, mcnab, m-c-n-a-b-b at cjob.com or gmac, g-m-a-c-k at cjob.com. I'm Greg. She is Loren. Brett's off today. It is the start on 680 CJB. Thank you for spending part of your morning with us. Loren, uh, apparently I did this all wrong with uh, doing the lines for Mr. Avon with my fingernail. Mm-hmm, I saw you. There's a tip yeah, for you. Yeah, Cam uh, texted in. He said, uh, GMAC, uh, when doing lines, tape five pens together in a row. You just had to borrow the pens from your buds. I didn't have any buds in grade seven. Would have made that easier. All. That is a pretty good tip. Somebody else, we were talking cruel and unusual punishment. Patty says her mom used to force them to eat tomato sandwiches, and when she refused the one morning for breakfast, their mom said, "Fine, but you're eating that for tomorrow's breakfast," oh. and literally meant you're going to eat the same sandwich piece of toast I just made you. So yeah, my mom tried that bread. With, with the pork and beans <laughs> once. Supper one night, lunch the next day. She realized I was not giving in on that, and so that experiment failed <laughs> a miserable death. Uh, one thing that uh, we would like to see fail and go away for a long, long time is meth. It's something we've been discussing here on 680 CJOB for close to a year. It's been gripping our community for longer than that, but we're using the terminology crisis not because we are using it, Loren, but because... At every level of government, there's an acknowledgement that's a problem. The city is calling it a crisis, and we're seeing it. Called it a crisis, and so uh, what's next? How do we how do we deal with that? And the question has been to the health minister for a few months now, and the premier: Is there an overreaching meth strategy that's coming? Something that's bigger than just an announcement here or there? Well, at nine o'clock, the provincial health minister Cam Friesen, along with Winnipeg Mayor Brian Bowman and Liberal MP Robert Falcon Willette, they'll meet. For a news conference, and the subject heading is illicit drugs. So it's not clear what will be in that announcement, but from frontline workers to those who run shelters for addicts, there are, of course, plenty of ideas. Marianne Willis runs St. Boniface Street Links, which is a support shelter for addicts, and joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Marion. Good morning. Any expectations that you'll hear something uh, more long-reaching, far-reaching as far as the strategy goes from the province today? Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm actually quite optimistic. I think that it's always um, I think there's reason to be hopeful when we see the province and we see the feds and we see the city come together. Um, I think that um, it really is time now to put aside partisanship and uh, for those three entities to come together and to figure out how to uh, come together with uh, the health authority, with policing, with our nonprofit sector, with all the uh, provincial resources that are there in terms of provincial programs, uh, sit together, come up with a strategy, and better yet, um, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, a, a way to court an effective coordination strategy to maximize on um, on what's there. Marion, let's I think pre- we all agree that uh, something's got to give here, and uh, we need to get a grip on this, and that's the only way we're going to do it. Sorry, Marion, your phone line just cracked out just for a sec. I thought you were finished speaking. Um, let's presume just for one moment that this announcement this morning encompasses all the things that, that you hope it will. What do you think has stood in the way to this point? You mentioned partisanship. Is there anything else you think that's gotten in the way of us declaring an emergency on this and acting accordingly? Well, I think that um, I think that this is um, sort of an unexpected twist, okay, in a government that is, um, you know, sort of I think in a bit of, of austerity mode, uh, trying to look at ways to save money and uh, not to sort of have to invest in something more. But it is going to take considerable investment, province-wide, to. Uh, really get a grip on the challenges with meth. And I think that everybody is at that point now where where they realize that. I think the province is willing to invest. Uh, Certainly the federal government has demonstrated that they are. And I believe that the city is doing absolutely everything they can as well. When it comes to what you've seen there at St. Boniface Street Links, you know, one of the things we have heard from Manitoba's Premier is that there's more than just meth going on. And so he expressed concern that if you just respond to a meth crisis, you know, people might move from meth to a different drug. And so it can't just be all about meth. But when it comes to what you're just seeing at your level in St. Boniface with the addicts that you work with, what is is the problem improved in any way? Or have you seen proof that it's well, moving on from meth to something else? No, you know what? I think that we have an addictions system in place that, probably works better for other um, drug addictions than for meth. I think that it's time that we, we may have to consider that meth is going to require quite a different intervention. Um, I really don't think that the 21-day, 28-day treatment programs are going to work, so I don't know that we should be pumping any more money into that. I think we require a very different strategy. I like the idea that there's going to perhaps be 30-day detox beds. And I think from detox, moving people into high-support living programs, similar to what we offer at Moorbrook House, and there would have to be many more Moorbrook House-type programs to do this. But I think, you know, where you come in and uh, you have an intake date, there is no discharge date. You're going to be there for as long as it takes to get through this. Uh, I love the idea of the mobile clinic, uh, clinical teams, and I think that those teams could provide a support to the uh, high support transitional living programs, you know, and, you know, through the Moorbrook House program, and I have to tell you, for the last two years, more than 90% of our population have been uh, meth-addicted individuals, and we're seeing that that's what works best. And I think that that's what we have to move for. I think we need to stop relying on programs that just simply cannot impact, um, you know, the life of, of a meth addict. We need to find a way to stop it and to turn it around. And so it's going to require quite a different approach. You know, in terms of the clinical, the mobile clinical teams, uh, 
we don't really talk much about Hawks, but Hawks is a program of the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. That's uh, health outreach and community services. They're a street team with a psychiatrist, with a complex case coordinator, with a street nurse, um, with a mental health worker, a housing specialist. This team is gold. And I can tell you that much of the success that we have at Moorbrook House is because we've been able to rely on that team to provide a rapid service to the people that we serve. And they will actually actually come to Moorbrook House to do that. So we need, we need more of that, you know, um, teams that can be immediately responsive. The RAM clinics have offered um, a good service. However, the challenge is, is that in establishing the RAM clinics, there wasn't really any thought put to the fact that there would be such an increased demand for detox and treatment services through RAM that we actually wouldn't be able to supply. So, uh, Marion, we have to let you run on that note. Uh, this story is not going anywhere, unfortunately, and I hope that we can uh, uh, draw on your ex- expertise uh, moving forward. Thank you for this, Marion. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Marion Willis runs St. Boniface Street Links, a support shelter for addicts, and uh, was a tremendous pleasure to make her acquaintance this morning. Yes, it's Breakfast with the Bombers, brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you, Loren. The offseason is in full effect for the CFL and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers for this edition of Breakfast with the Bombers. We're going to Lake Tahoe. Which is in? Well, it straddles the border between California and Nevada. We had a 4 a.m. bet. Was it California or Nevada? And we are both right. Delightful. Yeah. So we're betting that we're going to the California side based on who our guest is. Nichols under center. Fake toss to... Harris and a pass to Walatarski, who's in for the touchdown. Drew Walatarski. Uh, you know, this used to be the vacation spot for my family, and we actually hadn't got together in a while. So this was really my first Christmas back with them. So we all decided to kind of reminisce a bit and uh, come back to Tahoe. We've, we've been here for about five days. So what's the deal? You were born in Santa Clarita, California, correct? Yep, correct. But in somehow, some fashion... You're listed as a Canadian. Well, they call it a national player now. Yeah, yeah. So you're technically um, a Canadian somehow, some way? Explain this to us, Drew. I'm a magical person, man. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, my mom is was born and raised in Montreal. So she grew up in Canada, was born in Canada. My dad um, was born in the U.S., but at three years old, moved out to Montreal with his family. So he doesn't even remember his time in the U.S. as a child, really. Um, his parents were ministers, so they were doing some ministry in, uh, in Laval, I think, which is where my parents met uh, at a young age. So they were actually friends. My parents were actually friends. Their families were friends for a long time before my parents actually dated. Um, so they've known each other forever, which is kind of cool. And um, we still have relatives up in uh, in Ontario and B.C., so um, we used to go to Canada quite often actually growing up. So you're one of those rare uh, players from outside Canada who would have heard of Winnipeg, known about Winnipeg then? Um, actually, I've never heard of Winnipeg <laughs> until they called me. Oh, I yeah, made so I made some assumptions there just because you knew Ontario. No, no. Um, here's the thing. So I'm a West Coast guy, and I don't know if you guys know this, but everyone in California um, has terrible geography skills. You know, <laughs> California is the only thing that exists to us. So 
even Minnesota coming to my college and being like, hey, we want you to come out to Minnesota, I had to, like, really think, where is that? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I didn't really know where that was. Well, you're making uh, us feel a little bit better. Yeah, no, for sure, man. It's just the California way. Like, we just, you know, whatever. Uh, for, who do you take your uh, who do you took your official visits to? Um, just two schools actually, Minnesota and San Jose State. Okay. Um, and you went ahead and committed to um, right here. There you go. Minnesota. All right. <laughs> so you go to play for the Golden Gophers. Uh, what was that experience like? A lot of trials, a lot of tribulations, a lot of growth. Um, I mean, college was extraordinary in that aspect. I mean, I grew so much from just the experiences I had, the people that I met. I have great connections there now. And, uh, I mean, one traded, obviously, for the world. And it also trained me to play in the cold, which really helped coming up to Canada. Um, yeah, no, it was a great experience, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, you know, I still have teammates that I like to chat with, talk to. Uh, just a close-knit group that we were by the end, so I had a great time there. You mentioned that you had to kind of look up where Winnipeg was in the beginning. Yeah. How quickly, once you landed in Winnipeg and got going with the team, did you realize just how important the Blue Bombers are to this community and the feelings that fans have right across the province when it comes to the blue and gold? I got there for game three. So I didn't really know until the game. Like during the week, you know, I, obviously I, I didn't know how big it was going to be. The stadium was really cool. I remember being like, wow, this is a very impressive stadium. It was a great atmosphere. Um, the the crowd was crazy loud. The stadium was loud. I just remember being uh, pretty excited to get out there and play. It felt kind of like um, a Big Ten stadium, like the noise, but um, definitely inspired me to, to work really hard. Well, you've become a big part of this team, and uh, I want to talk about Chris Strevler before we let you go and your connection with him, but uh, Matt Nichols has been uh, started to, to depend on you as well. Uh, talk about that idea of creating a, a connection. I think chemistry is sometimes overused, but I think it's the exact right word when it comes to yeah. uh, receivers and quarterbacks. There, there has to be, you know, uh, something there. En français, we might say uh, a certain uh, je ne sais quoi. Beautiful French. Um, <laughs> Here's Nichols in the gun on second and seven at the Ryder 20. Has the ball. Pump fakes. And into the end zone he goes. Touchdown, Drew Wolitarski. A stop and goal pattern. And the Bombers go up 12 to six. I think that starts with a trust factor. I think that just is building trust. And I think the friendship comes from that trust. Um, me and Matt, for example, you know, He's a, he's an older guy. He's got a family. I'm a 23 year old kid. You know, usually um, those people don't really hang out or they don't really, you know, understand each other's lives. I mean, I guess he would understand mine better than I would his, but um, it just was kind of thing. Like I was next to his locker and, and we would, you know, we had similar jokes. We had similar um, personalities in, in that aspect. And, you know, I told him several times, I'm like, listen, man, like I'm going to, I'm going to be a guy that, that's going to catch everything. And you throw me the ball, like, I'm not going to let you down. And, um, and, and then we kind of had this thing where I would warm up with him before the game. Like, it just started happening, and then it just became kind of a routine. Like, we'd go out before the game, I'd run some routes, he'd throw me the ball. Just kind of get that, you know, subliminal connection, that subliminal um, chemistry, as you called it, or whatever the other French thing you said. <laughs> um, Something you can't yeah, quite put your I, finger on, right? Right, exactly. It's kind of that invisible thing, but it definitely exists, especially as the trust is gained 
and um, you, you just keep performing and, and just hold each other accountable, I think. So Greg mentioned Chris Streveler. Chris Streveler has the ball. He's got an open man at the 10, down to the 5, and there's an easy touchdown for Drew Walatarski. You were teammates with him uh, before? Or were, you ro- were you roommates as well? Yeah, we, were, we lived in the same house together um, on Como Avenue. Beautiful, beautiful house. And um, I stayed with him in the dorms as well. So we were together for like two years before he transferred. But, yeah, we were both in Minnesota. Um, Chris, is a, Chris is a good guy, and I, I even told him this. I think him being here this year was huge for my own growth and I think for his as well, just having someone uh, in your situation um, who you know and who's your friend kind of to, to lean on and, and get advice from. Um, so I think him being here was awesome. He's a great dude. Love playing with him. Um, yeah, and it's just kind of crazy how we ended up back in the same place, which was something we continually talked about all year. Well, because it's the off season, I think we can get away without talking about football for this whole conversation. I wanted to ask you, I've been hearing in the newsroom, you're a musician? Yeah, so I um, I picked up guitar about over a year ago. And this last off season, I played probably like six hours a day. So I was just obsessed with this thing. And um Got kind of ahead of the game and started doing some open mic stuff, uh, making my own songs, singing, songwriting, and uh, learning electric bass now. Just kind of expanding my musical horizons. I've gotten really into it. It's something I can't even imagine living without. Don't know how I did it before. Um, yeah, it's it's a big hobby of mine. It's a big interest of mine. I'm a reader and... Um, just a creative guy like I can't really sit still and watch sports too long like I just gotta be playing it or not doing it or not watching it it just it doesn't work for me man you said reader so, and writer like you've written some books like you're not just a writer like casually in a diary or an article like you've written uh, no, books no, no. Is that... like um yeah I've written some longer pieces like over 300 pages um a lot of short stories I just mostly short stories now I want to make a collection of short stories um just because it's easier to write those um, on, as I like travel a lot and especially with my schedule during the season it's tough to write a novel but uh, I like collection of short stories and I write those I, I do have like a song journal I do have like a an other journal like more personal but I usually like to write stories like fiction Drew, you sound like a quintessential Californian I gotta tell you like if you were doing like a, a character sketch before creating a book or a novel or even a short story, you might be California dude uh, personified. <laughs> uh, that's funny, man. I'm a, a, I'm a mix I, now, though. I I'm, think like, he's... I'm, a, I'm a Canadian, Minnesotan, Californian. Love it, man. That's great. I think that was a, Greg's way of complimenting you because you seem to have all sorts of talents in all sorts of hidden areas. Yeah, so absolutely. Remarkable. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, it was a huge compliment. Uh, a little bit jealous, to be frank. Hey, Drew, thanks for making the time for us. Thank your family for uh, for us for letting you get away for a few minutes. Uh, awful kind of you, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thank you so much, man, and Merry Christmas. Appreciate you guys. Okay, let's start this half hour with transplants. They provide better outcomes than dialysis for end-stage kidney disease, and that's the headline. Loren, what's the story here? So... It's a growing problem in Manitoba. I don't think it's too much of a surprise to note that we have pretty high rates of diabetes in this province. We also have more cases of end-stage kidney disease, or at least the rates of end-stage kidney disease are higher here in Manitoba 
than anywhere else in the country. But in a new report released this morning by the Canadian Institute of Health Information, there's also some good news about survival rates if a donor is found. Michael Turner is the team lead of acute and ambulatory care information services and joins us on the phone to explain. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. If we can, let's take a look at Manitoba's numbers. What are we seeing when it comes to diabetes and end-stage kidney disease in this province? Well, diabetes is the main cause of kidney failure in Canada. Um, Manitoba has a rate of 244 patients per million population, uh, which is higher than that of the rest of Canada, which has less than, uh, a little less than 200. So when, when it comes to how we treat that here and what people are, are doing to stay alive, is it often a case of dialysis while they wait for a possible transplant? And, and what can that do to Manitobans who are looking to, uh, to live longer? Yes. Uh, well, we found that when it comes to survival rates uh, in Canada, um, a patient on dialysis um, or 16% of Canadians on dialysis will survive past 10 years. But for those who are able to get a kidney transplant, uh, after 10 years, 74% will still have a, even a working kidney, at which point, even if that kidney had failed, uh, they can still go back on dialysis. So, Michael, compare the quality of life issue here for someone that receives a transplant versus someone that has to deal with dialysis. How often do you, do you need to engage in that process? Walk us through it and compare the two situations for us. Sure. Uh, the quality of life is very different between the two. Uh, for a person who's on dialysis, they're artificially cleaning their blood. Uh, they have to go in uh, usually around three times a week for four-hour sessions uh, to go uh, undergo dialysis. Um, there's quite a few uh, water and food restrictions. Uh, it can be difficult to travel. Uh, there's a lot of side effects. Uh, when a person has an organ donor, specifically a kidney transplant, they have a now a functioning kidney that is cleaning their blood all the time. So now that patient can um, essentially live a normal life. They still have to be monitored and receive medications, but it really gives them back uh, the freedom of their life. You talked about several hours a week tied to a machine, really uh, several days, several hours. Uh, but the, the issue still might be waiting for that donation or for that organ transplant. This is something that you can do as a live donor, though. And I'm still not sure how many people might be aware about that. Is that a growing option or do you see more live kidney donations? Well, living uh, kidney donations in Canada, Canada is actually compared pretty well internationally, but the rate of living uh, kidney donations has actually gone down about 12% in the last 10 years. Uh, but that being said, Manitoba has the highest rate of living uh, kidney donations in all of Canada. Is that a connection, do you think, Michael, between the fact that we just also have a lot, perhaps more patients in need and therefore more family members might be willing to step in, or are we just that generous? I think there's been a lot of effort uh, to increase uh, kidney donations in Manitoba, and they've shown uh, quite a big improvement. When it comes to don donations from deceased donors, uh, Manitoba is, is much lower than the rest of Canada, but it's actually going up quite a bit. Just in the previous year, uh, that rate had went up about 23%. So I know someone who's waiting to donate his kidney as a living donor, uh, not even necessarily someone who's related to him, just saw him uh, just a couple of weeks ago and this process has been delayed. What is life going to look like for that living donor once they uh, give up the, so generously that part of their, of their being, of their body? 
Well, it is quite a process uh, to be a living donor. You have to be uh, undergo quite a few tests because you have to make sure that that uh, living donor is uh, healthy enough and that their kidneys are healthy enough that they can donate. But a person only needs one kidney uh, to live. Um, and they do follow up on living donors to make sure that they're okay in the future. All right. Thanks so much. We're talking to Michael Turner, the team lead of acute and ambulatory care for the Canadian Institute of Health Information on the study that found today that the outcomes for people at end of end stage kidney disease can actually have a better outcome if they choose or they can get a transplant over dialysis. And thank you very much for the time, Michael. Without further ado, we will introduce to you the president of the Manitoba Psychological Society, Joanne Unger. Dr. Unger, thanks for taking some time with us. Always great to see you. Great to see you in studio. I think this is our first time with us. So, so welcome. Well, no, with, us, it with us, with the two of us. Yes, yeah, the first time. I think we're so. going to have to get her to, she's just <laughs> nodding and shaking her head. Yeah, well. Dr. I don't like Unger. to disagree with people on air. Yeah, well, that's okay. That's, uh, we appreciate that. Yes, with the pair of you specifically. Very specific. We're very specific. We're very, very Loren and Greg centric. Okay. So uh, maybe we can talk about that off the air. But on the air, we want to talk about this time of year because it can be extremely difficult for, for many folks. Yes, absolutely. Um, often there's this uh, conception that um, holidays are a time of joy and celebration and family and friends, and that's very often the case, but it's not uncommon at all for it to be a very difficult time of year for a lot of people. And so I'm glad you're having this uh, conversation to talk about that. There'd be all sorts of reasons for that. Might be might be that you have loss or you've experienced yep. loss, and, you're, and I'd like to get into that in a moment, but, but also just generally speaking for I think many of us, there's this pressure we might put yep. on ourselves and so we're I'm so first for example for me I'm de- I can't wait to go see my family and I'm delighted to be able to have them still around to do that but then there's that list of things that I want to get to and I'm not even talking money but just all the little things yep. that need to come together why do we do that to ourselves because I'll get to the new year and say you know what next year I'm cutting out this and yeah, this and I'm sure. not going to worry about it. But, but so you used a very important word when you made that sentence you said I need to get done to get there. And I think that's something that we do to ourselves. We say we need to get all of these things done to have a good holiday. And the fact is, is maybe we would like to get all of those things done. But when we add that word need or have to, to a situation, we add a level of stress and pressure to ourselves that increases negative reactions and mood to the holiday time. So that's one of the things I recommend uh, off the top is really checking our expectations as well as the things on those that list. So do I change my list then? Like maybe have a want versus need or Absolutely. how would you do it? Absolutely. Um, so trying to be very realistic in the things that you uh, expect of yourself and the people around you as well, because we not only put this pressure on ourselves, but we put it on our family and our friends as well to get all these things done. I often... Uh, Think about uh, prioritizing what those things are. What are the things that are most important to you? What are the things that give you the most meaning, the most joy, and make those the priorities? And then, you know, if you get to those other things, it's kind of like a bonus as opposed to if I don't get to them, it's a huge disappointment. Mm-hmm. We even put pressure with regard to the gift buying and the giving and the receiving. I know uh, you're always trying to make that perfect gift choice for the person that you care about the most or your kids. And there comes that added pressure of, I hope that they're going to react the way I imagine that they will react. And when they don't, that can lead to some disappointment as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important. What 
I, I encourage people to do when they're thinking about gift giving and, and presents. And I know that's often a very uh, special time and we feel like it's an important time. There's nothing that feels as good as seeing that joy, you know, on someone you love's face. Um, however, I often remind people about how quickly people let go of those toys or those things or those gifts and how they sit on a shelf very soon after. And I also encourage people to think about, you know, when you look back at your holiday times and you look back at what the memories were that you had that were super special, sometimes they involved a gift, more often not. Mm-hmm. Right. So thinking about but it's convincing yourself, because yeah. I, even as you say that, so our whole family's talked about my siblings are getting together with our kids about our excitement. We can't wait to just have that one day where we sit around the fire, watch a movie that we've seen a hundred times and just hang out. Right. That's it. But there's a, there's other things that are going to yet. That's that's all we're gearing towards. So all yeah. we need is the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And yet all those other pieces, I can't seem to drop. Like it's really yeah. hard. It's almost conditioning yourself. Yep. Sometimes some families do some things like picking names so you don't have to buy everybody a gift. You set a price limit ahead of time so that it doesn't become financially a burden as well. People do handmade gifts where you make something. So there's lots of different ways. Sometimes it requires the pre-planning and, you know, it's a little late in the game this year maybe to do that piece. Um, But those are some ways to kind of take the pressure off. Yeah, but if you're going to be together, and so many of us will be together, and some will not, and we'll discuss that on the other side of our break, uh, this is a good time to talk about this for next year. Absolutely. And to set some boundaries yeah. and some expectations for next year with the group of people you typically spend the holidays with. Yeah. And have a really honest conversation because even as I talk about some of the stresses I'm feeling this season, we don't do gifts in our family really beyond a few things for the kids and, and our siblings. We, our goal is to get together if we're going to do it yeah. and do something together. Yeah. But even with that, there's still meals to plan and all the rest, yeah. right? And so we have had those frank conversations, but sometimes... Uh, yeah. There's the one person who doesn't stick with it, or you can see that that one the other family member you can see the stress because the yeah. meal seems to fall all on them, or yep. you're trying to manage all that. Yeah, and it's about and and I think that's a good conversation to have too is about that sharing of the responsibilities and who's doing what. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but you show up to an event and there is just way more food than any one family could possibly eat anyway. So if you look at that and go, well, this is you know it's nice, but you know, maybe we don't have to do this much next year, and that will help actually make it a little bit more enjoyable. Get so the turnips off the table. Well, that would that would be a great start. <laughs> Wait, Just first get rid start. of the turnip altogether, <laughs> and then nobody has to make it. We'll take a pause. It's coming up to 8.44 on this Tuesday morning. Dr. Joanne Unger, president of the Manitoba Psychological Society, is in studio with us, and uh, we will shift gears in terms of discussion. I'll tell you how uh, Fuller House, an episode of Fuller House last night, made me realize that maybe I'm not in the place I thought it was when it came to being comfortable with Christmas. Uh, if you're comfortable with me sharing, I'll do so on the other side. Uh, it is the start. I'm Greg. She's Loren. Brett's off today. Hope you're having a great start to your day. You would think that with all the time, four hours that we have to talk about <laughs> stuff, we, we would eventually run out of things to discuss. Nope, I was nope. too busy chatting with Dr. Unger in the break to even let you do the weather. <laughs> Dr. Joanne Unger is president of Manitoba Psychological Society. She joins us for psychology in the city. And this time of year, as we mentioned, can be very difficult for some folks. And for me, uh, my mom's favorite time of year was Christmas. And this will be now 16 Christmases without my mom. And I thought I'd be had been getting a lot better. I had zero interest in decorating the tree for the last 
12, 13, 14 years. Last couple of years, things got a lot better. But last night, I was watching an episode of Fuller House with my kids, and I won't get into the plot line extensively other than to say one of the stories within that story is that the, the kids, the Fuller kids, have lost their dad. And so it's Christmas, and one of the boys was acting just like I did as a 45-year-old at Christmas time, just really not interested in decorating the tree because I, I was missing my mom. And last night, the tears started pouring out of my eyes, and one of my boys looked at me and just held my hand because he knew he knew what I was thinking about, that it was relate, I was relating that to missing my mom. So there are a lot of people that deal with that this time of year. And any advice on, on how to how to cross over into into enjoying that time of year again. Absolutely. Uh, that's very common. Um, holidays are a time where we're often together, and so that's more acutely aware of the people who are not with us. Um, and that's very, very common, especially if we've lost someone recently, um, for us to have those lots of mixed feelings and maybe just sadness and, and grief and, and um, are, are the major ones that we might be experiencing. My first advice always is not to judge it. So often, because we have all these expectations about Christmas and the holidays and how they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to be happy, when we have those experiences of sadness and grief, we go, we shouldn't. And that actually makes it worse, right? We add that level of judgment on top of an already difficult emotion. And so if we can say, you know what, I'm feeling sad and that's okay. And it's okay that my son holds my hand and we have a little cry together. And that's part of holidays. And actually, sadness and and loss and grief can actually be very meaningful, so we often think we shouldn't have them or that they're, you know, they're, we label some emotions bad and some good when actually, you know, I don't know, if, we love to go to movies to cry, mm-hmm. right? And that the reason is, is it's meaningful, right? It's connecting and it's real. And so to not, first is, is not dismiss it, not push it away, not judge it, and just be in that for a moment. You'd also, you know, I know a lot of people don't want to stay there for long periods of time. Um, you don't want to miss the things that are also happening around you. So to honor it, give space for it, and then to move into the other parts of Christmas that are also there or the holidays or whatever you're celebrating. I like the use of the word she had, honor it, because I think what's so great is that your boys, Greg, recognized what you were going through without you having to say anything, which means you must talk about your mom a lot and share things yeah. that you would have done at Christmas, which which might be nice for people to hear too. Well, which I think dovetails into the second part is what do you do when you recognize that somebody's having a difficult time? Because uh, some people are brave enough to to ask for help. Some aren't quite there yet. How do we lend a hand or a shoulder without being intrusive or overstepping bounds? It's a tricky balance. Um, If people are struggling with... um, even things like depression, um, the tendency is to isolate and to pull away from people. Um, and that actually doesn't make it better. It actually makes it worse. And so um, for friends and family, it is helpful to have those moments of reaching out. Again, you don't want to overstep. If someone is saying, please leave me alone, mm-hmm. you know, there does have to be uh, uh, respect for that. Um, but um, I would say not to treat those, those barriers as um, the answer for all time. Right. So if in that moment a person says, you know what, I'm I gotta go or I'm I'm I, I can't talk right now or this isn't a good time, um, respect that. But then don't give up. Right. So a couple of days later, give it another try because it might be different. Um, you know, even talking about how they're feeling and saying, you know, I know that you don't feel like going out or connecting, but I think it would be 
you know, you might feel better. How about like just five minutes for a coffee or, you know, those small little steps that might be a little bit easier to handle than, you know, a full family gathering or or a big event. It's an isolating time of year. I think if you're going through something or you've had loss recently or you're just feeling those pressures. And then I wonder about those who Christmas isn't really a thing for them. Yep. And I had I have lived in a country where they don't really celebrate Christmas. I mean, there was, but there wasn't a lot. It was in Israel. And so you felt kind of, there were still for sure tons of things for, for anyone who was Christian, but you didn't feel like home. So you felt that level of sadness yeah. too in and around that season. So there's countless Winnipeggers and Manitobans Absolutely. where Christmas isn't a thing, nope. but everything's shut down or people yep. are talking about their celebrations. So should we be acknowledging those in our lives where it's not a thing and finding a way to include them or just being aware that it's not for everybody. I think being aware and being sensitive to that. Um, I think being curious about what they celebrate is, is would be part of it too. So if you're talking a lot about what you're doing, say, hey, what do you guys do? What are your major holidays? How do you celebrate them? What do you guys do? And then hear from them because as as uh, Christmas is definitely part of the dominant culture. And so it's everywhere, right? It's hard not to know about it. But having that curiosity and sensitivity, people who don't celebrate or celebrate differently or um, celebrate at different times a year, just hearing from them and letting them have uh, um, their side or their story or their experience also be told. Before we let you go, Joanne, uh, this is a difficult time, as mentioned, but it can also be an enlightened time. So for those that maybe, you know, this conversation or other or something else sparks them. And I would say, you know, it's important when people are strong enough to ask for help, Absolutely. that it be there. Where can people look for help right now this time of year? Where's the, where's the, you know, if someone's going, yeah, I'm feeling strong enough at this moment, what should they do? Yeah, there's a lot of different resources out there. Um, so as president of Mandible Psychological Society, I'll point people to our website that has a directory of psychologists. Um, if you don't have coverage or it's hard to afford, there are other places like the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba, Anxiety Disorders Association of Manitoba, Community Mental Health Association, which provide um, more community-based resources that are also good places to start. I'll give a shout out to the folks at HSC as well at yeah. the center there. If, if you like, get someone to drive you if Absolutely. you need. You can see your doctor um, to get a referral, to go into the the, um, the mental health mm-hmm. program as well. Because yeah. you might not want to wait some, in some cases, right? Yeah. Like That's if right. you feel Sometimes like you're really now, needing right? it, it's yeah. There's this moment. The clinic helpline, 786-8666, uh, can give you some resources, place to start. Dr. Joanne Unger, always great to uh, have time with you. So I appreciate this very much. Thanks for coming in studio today. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.